Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Hello out there. Welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly Billinghurst. And joined with me is my co-host, Serge Boudreau. Serge, welcome to another show. Oh, welcome the to Surge another show. show. The Surge Show, right? <laughs> oh, I mean the Surgeon Shelly. No, Sur- let's go with the Recruitment Flex. All right. Yes. So as part of our mission, when we started this podcast, mm-hmm. we wanted to get the best guests in the world. And we've been able to do that. But we yeah. did miss on some areas. And one of the areas was in Europe. Netherlands is a very intriguing market when it comes to talent acquisition and recruitment marketing. So we figured we'd bring one of the experts, if not the expert, Absolutely. I want to introduce Boz Van D. Hettert. Did I do it right, Boz? <laughs> Is Close he better enough. than Chad? <laughs> it's better than Chad did. Technically, you pronounce it Boz van der Hattert. Perfect. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So, Boz has an amazing podcast that just launched last week called The Talent Savvy. So, for our listeners, you're looking for great podcasts, please do find that one talent savvy and what is boz he is a professional snoop which i don't even know what that means so boz welcome to the show thank you it's awesome to be here on that note for the audience who don't realize just what a powerhouse you are boz can you share with the audience a little bit about your background and you know we've got to know what is this professional snoop how does that work? Professional Snoop is actually a title I got when I was still working for a company. I kept sticking my nose into other people's business, especially entrepreneurs. And one guy once said to me, you're genuinely a professional Snoop. Every time I start something new, you're meddling in it. And so I said, do you want me to quit? He's like, no, every time you meddle in it, I make a lot of money. So please continue. <laughs> but you are a professional snoop. And I told him, if I ever start my own company, that's going on my business card. And he said, you'll never do that. And that's the one thing you don't have to say to me. So when I started my own business 15 years ago, professional snoop was on my business card. And it remained there for uh, I love it forever. So the and- best consultants ask the best questions. Yeah. And that's technically what I am. I'm a consultant. I just don't always stay in my lane and I don't always do what is expected of me. I do what a company needs to be done, which isn't always what the CEO wants me to do. So uh, I'm a pain in the ass and I just (laughs) meddle with stuff where people don't want me. Um, To give you an example, one time at an event, somebody came to me after I gave a lecture, because that's one of the things I do a lot. And he said to me, you completely trashed my uh, work online. And I'm like, sorry, you who still are you? have to explain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who are you? And you still yeah. have to explain, what because did I, I actually did that to three separate companies last week. And he, eventually he became a client, by the way, because he was like, you were so right. And because... Wow. The C-level read your article on how terrible our career side was. I now have the budget to make a decent one. And <laughs> nice work. That, that has actually happened to me two or three times when people came up to me and were like, you completely trashed my work. And I was like, I didn't even trash it that much. I've grown softer with age. <laughs> so, Bass, you know what I'm not connecting, though, is it sounds like you're... Yes, a shit disturber. So God love you. That's the tricks I need to learn. 
But where's the connection to talent acquisition? I, I disturb everything in talent acquisition. I okay. publish about it. I consult a lot about it. I speak a lot about it. I'm actually a trainer on talent acquisition innovation. Uh, I consult with companies right now, for example, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in the Netherlands on implementing assessment technology. I've wow. consulted with many of the major employers on their corporate career sites. And that's basically what I've been doing for 15 years. So, Boss, you are an expert on career sites. I've read a ton of your articles, and I think you're obviously very fluent in what a good career site is. On that note, I read an article that you wrote not too long ago, and this is one we've been talking a lot between myself and Shelly. We work with a lot of different companies in assessing the recruitment process from A to Z. And one of the things that we've noticed, I would say 90% of the companies have you register before you can apply. I read what you wrote that in the Netherlands, it's around 11%, which seems crazy to me, but seems amazing in the sense that it is so well thought of and it shows a little bit we're behind. So tell me about that research because there was some findings in there that said that by removing it, you're going to get 50% more applicants. So can you tell me a little bit about that? You're actually combining two pieces of research now. One I've done myself. So uh, I run the biggest career side research in the Netherlands. I research all of our major employers and we researched them on over 100 data points. And I actually gave out the award last week again that's been 15 years going I have an award on the best corporate career site in the Netherlands. I've actually, for this podcast, been looking back and we started measuring, is there a register to apply in 2009 for the first time? And then we were at about 15%. Right now, we're just under 11%. So it has decreased a bit. And I've seen a lot of requests for proposal going to ATSs, which actually the very first request is, do you have a register to apply? Yes, no. If yes, then you're not going to go into the possibility of becoming our ATS, which in part has to do with people actually wanting to win my award, I found out. Why do you think there's a hesitancy to remove that register to apply? I know it's Where's not- Where's that coming from? Yeah, in Canada and the US, it's a major hesitancy. What do you think is driving that? I, I don't know if it's a hesitancy. I've actually seldom met people who didn't want to remove it from TA. But for some reason, TA isn't in charge of buying the ATS, which makes yeah. no sense to me whatsoever that you wouldn't be. I mean, that's like telling the carpenter he can't buy his own hammer. These are the most important tools. Let's not give it to IT. We need to be able to decide what we're going to do. One of the things I'm snooping in every now and again, I actually get clients who say, can you write up a report why we wouldn't have to buy X, Y, or Z, and we all know which ATSs have to register to apply, please, I'm going to pay you a lot of money to write a report where I can convince my IT department this is the worst thing we can buy. That yeah. is universal. That is yeah. a global with, with one... statement. Like not just the Netherlands. This is absolutely the case here in Canada and in the US. I'm not saying mm. that this is IT's fault. It's TA's fault that for some reason we're not arguing with IT. Because every time I do an interim shift in a company, I just start talking to IT. I speak a bit of their language explain to them why something is necessary. And I've actually never not gotten what I wanted. 
and and the other part mm. is simply data. Like I said, the, the research I did with Attrax, which is a, a UK-based company on their on the conversion rate, even if you're using one of those ATSs which demands a register to apply, their middleware takes it out and they just have a decent application process. Mm-hmm. And they've seen between 50 and 75% increase in conversion. So people hitting the apply button and finishing the application if you take out the registration. And with this data, I simply go to the head of TA or some higher level manager and say, okay, so you think you're saving, I don't know, 50,000 euros to use a, an application which is part of another process? Okay, but you're going to give me 250,000 euros extra in advertising budget, which I need because I need <laughs> to get in twice as many people because half of them are dropping off at the conversion point. Mm. And all of a sudden, you make the business case. But that's the one thing we recruiters are terrible at, making a business case. It is true. And when you put it point blank, it's a no-brainer, right? That the executive is going to say, of course not. Yet what's interesting is even getting that data sometimes, boss, is just near impossible. Are these software firms actually wanting to cloak that data, the drop-off specifically? Because there are ATSs that apparently can't tell us that, the abandon rate. So without the abandon rate, you're fucked. Like, how do you prove that your ATS is your problem? And that's exactly where the uh, level of expertise within TA is lacking, because it is really easy to capture it. At my last interim stint, we weren't capturing it. And I said, listen, I want you to put a tracker under the apply button, which is on the website. So I can actually measure how many people hit apply. Then I'm just going to look at how many resumes are we actually getting in. And I have the difference. No, it's not in one system. Start thinking like what we can measure. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I do. I live it and I see it because, you know, at times I think Canada, we always feel like we're running behind. We look at our American counterparts and colleagues. We're like, Look at all the fun tools they have. And then we talk to our European colleagues and we're like, oh, we're 15 years behind you or five at least. So something that you posted recently was, interestingly enough, an article around pre-interview digital assessments and companies moving to that. To me, it sounded instinctively counterintuitive. Don't register to apply, but we're going to test you before you apply. Boss, help us get our noggins around this. Where were you going with that? The test is the application. So we're not going to test you before you apply. We're simply going to test you. You actually apply and then you get the test immediately. But that's a mental thing. If you said yes once, you're going to say yes again. The pre-assessment is done before you start selecting people based on the most irrelevant document there is for quality, the resume. A resume tells me what you've done for who and for how long. The only things we know which have predictive validity is how well you've done and under what circumstances you've done so well. And those are the two things you really can't measure in a resume. You're absolutely right. You'll get no pushback. But Talk about candidate experience, because why would they be willing to do that? If you just said that 50% drop off, if you make me register and fill in 30 pages, how is this different? It's different 
if you are able to show people that it matters. What we've actually seen in uh, several of my clients is that as long as people understand why they're doing the test, as long as the questions are relevant, or of course, if your job is interesting enough, a lot of people are willing to go through it. And what you actually often see happening is that different people who based on their resume might not have applied because they knew they were going to be rejected are not just applying now because they understand they've got a fair chance, but also thriving. Okay, so where I see a challenge is a lot of candidates are getting ghosted, right? They're applying to several jobs, never hearing back. So there would be a hesitancy for someone to take time to apply for that job thinking they're probably never going to hear back. I think it's different if someone comes to the table and be like, hey, I saw your profile, you look great. I know they are engaged on their end and they're actually going to be looking at it compared to I apply, I get a test, I'm like, screw you, I've got 20 other jobs that I can potentially move forward. I'm not going to waste my time. And I'm already working. I'm already working. So (laughs) what's your take on that? Why am I wrong there? You're not wrong depending on the job. So there are certain jobs where you cannot do this. For example, IT professionals will not do the assessment ahead of time. For the the, the clientele I see here in the Netherlands, we see almost the same drop-off rates on assessments or usually a little lower than on sending in a resume. There's enough people saying, why should I write a cover letter? And there are more people who actually like doing a few tests than writing a cover letter, especially people with lower educations love being able to show something in a test and hate cover letters. That's one part of it. The other part is that it depends on how extensive is the test and how fun is the test and how do you actually show people that they need to do it. We've been piloting with it at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a year. I can tell you the dropout rate is extremely low, even lower than we expected. But the beauty of the system is also that first you apply And in their case, they have a really rigid ATS, so they still need a resume and a cover letter because somebody once said, that's what you need for an application. We're changing that part. So you're not even ghosted because the first thing you get told is, awesome, now here's a test we want you to do as well. So you can bring your full self to the interview and we actually know who you are. And no, not everybody finishes it. Yes, it's an extra step in the process, but the the benefit is that a lot of people, and especially people with a non-traditional white Dutch name and background, actually now have the feeling that they're seeing more as the whole person because all of your talents are coming out. Every job has its own specific profile, and we're only testing what's relevant for that profile and the organization. But I can also tell you that I've seen a lot of tests and they actually did candidate experiences on the people who did the tests. And this was, I think, almost eight or nine years ago. This was one of the very first. And people actually said, oh, that's quite a fun application process. How often have you had somebody say about submitting a resume and a cover letter? Oh, this was fun. Never. <laughs> no. And I've actually had people doing assessments and good assessments and and, and well-designed assessments Mm -hmm. where where 60% of the people applying said, this was cool. This was fun. 
So I, I don't disagree with it. I think there's multiple factors that are really gradable assessment. And like you said, you're hiring on skills, you're hiring on ability. You're not looking at the resume as per se. And when you look at diversity, it really removes a lot of the unconscious bias. But I, I want to go on to another subject. And again, we're picking off a lot of the articles you've written because I think your points are always really intriguing. So please look up everyone, Boz van der Hattad. Did I get it right? No, I'm getting closer. Um, You're getting closer. On recruiting daily because his articles are actually relevant to what's going on in the world. One of the things that I'm completely on the same page as you is employer brands. You said, and I'll read it. The new employer brand is about the genuine values of the organization, measurable values that you can select on. Let's stop rejecting people on cultural fit and start hiring or rejecting them on value fits. As we know, a lot of value propositions, employment brand out there, it's bullshit. And as a job seeker, I'm looking at it and I'm like, it's not authentic. It's not real. So give me your thoughts on what messaging for employment brands should look like. How should companies adjust from that standard, we're a great place to work because we're a family and all that bullshit? First of all, if your employment brand isn't rejecting anybody, isn't appalling to some people, it's not an employer brand. Interesting. Interesting. Very good point. Tell me more. Tell me really more. Really good um, point. The thing is, it, nobody hates vanilla, but I haven't ever found anybody who's in love with vanilla. And we usually make a vanilla employer brand. Oh, it's acceptable to everybody. But Thanks. nobody loves working for an acceptable company. You want to work for a company you feel at home. And especially the younger generations, they want to feel that they're adding to the world. So if you're not rejecting somebody, it's not an employer brand. The second part of this equation actually fits in with our previous topic, assessments. One of the possibilities of doing an early assessment is simply having situational judgment tests. Okay, here's a very critical incident. How would you deal with it? I often use the example, okay, so you're early 30-year-old and childcare just called that you need to pick up your kid because he or she is sick and the sick kid cannot be in childcare. And you have a meeting this afternoon with an external party. How will you respond? Will you cancel the meeting? Will you get your spouse or your partner to, to pick up the kid? Or will you get a colleague? And this tells me so much about your company culture, about the true values in your company. And I have actually used this same example for four different companies, and all four of them said, yeah, that's logical, and all four of them gave a different answer. It tells you so much. But if you start looking at these kinds of questions, these types of company value, and ask them on your corporate career side, before you even ask for a resume, how would you deal with these four situations? You can actually measure your employer brand based on value fit. The problem is, actually getting people inside your organization to agree on this because we've never done it. And in many large organizations, your employer brand is all over the place. That's why you've got so many colleagues hating each other. Yeah, it's so true. Absolutely. Because there's little subcultures as well. Because if you've got a wonderful leader in one area of the organization who truly does value you, and then you've got a tyrant in another division where they honestly believe, do what I fucking tell you to do because there's 10 more people that'll take your place all in the same organization. 
right? So that's why the employer brand is it's it's almost like bipolar. How do you communicate that then? But that's not a problem. I did an, an employer brand consultancy work at a hospital once, and they were simply saying, "Listen, cardio surgery has nothing to do with ear, nose, mouth surgery. Has yeah. nothing to do with." The uh, post means defeat. And we made such complete different employer brand videos when we launched the very first one, which was for the feet. And they were, um, apparently the culture was, everybody was dancing together the, as the department. <laughs> and they wanted to show that, how close they were and that they were actually each other's dancing partners. And she said, the second department we got to was cardio surgery. And they were like, we are not doing that. And she's like, no, of course you're not, because you're not that. The two of you have never spoken. Of course you're not. And we are willing to show that every department within our organization is different. Brilliant. I've actually talked to, this was a former head of innovation at one of our biggest hospitals. And he literally put a piece of paper in front of everybody who's sitting there. He says, and the exact way I find that piece of paper after our conversation, I know which department they were from. You know, do they crush it up or do they tear it up and how small are the pieces? And he could actually see, depending on the pieces of paper, which department had been sitting at a certain table. So now it's really becoming clear to me on why somebody would call you a snoop. Like you ask the greatest questions. Amazing. I'm thinking our audience is really intrigued to hear this. Now, here in Canada and certainly in the US, it's no secret that there is a big disconnect in terms of people who may have held certain roles essential for our economy, whether it's food service or hospitality, setting tables like all of those. And they are struggling here in Canada to get people to apply to those jobs again. What's happening in Europe? Uh, Of course, Europe is a whole bunch of countries. Okay, uh, so let's stick with the Netherlands. It's really (laughs) difficult to tell you what's going on all around Europe. Europe is not a country? What are you talking about? (laughs) What? No. No, um, You think you're all the same. Yeah, we're we're, we're all the same. But to be honest, culturally and historically, there's so much difference. Uh, Also in labor laws, if you look at the UK, it's much different from the rest of continental Europe, but the North and the South are also very different. France is an outlier in any way uh, possible. I mean, for example, you still can't fire a government official, but everybody who worked for France Telecom, which is their biggest telecom, was once a government official, so can't be fired. But we too are struggling to find employees. The thing is, what I read about a great resignation in the US and Canada and Australia and the UK, because it's almost always about the English, the Anglo-Saxon countries. In those countries, people are quitting. The reason we've struggled to find them is people are staying put. It's really difficult to get a Dutchman to move right now for two reasons. First of all, he or she wants to be asked to move. We're not applying on our own right now, which might have something to do uh, with the fact that the fixed contract really still has value here. And we didn't put people on furlough. We supported the companies to keep people working for them, which actually had some interesting side effects. All our bars and clubs have never been this fixed up because they were closed 
but you still had your people. So everything got painted. I mean, the do-it-yourself market has boomed over the last year and a half here in the <laughs> Netherlands. We couldn't even get the paint because everybody was painting. <laughs> but because government aid for companies has run out, people okay. are now like, okay, who took on too much debt? Who's going to be falling over in a couple of months' time? Let's stay put because I still have my unemployment. If I stay put, if I change, I'm not so sure. People have been going to work less in the Netherlands, and we have been the world champion of part-time work. To give you an idea, almost 60% of all Dutch people work four days a week the most. Okay. And how easy is it to immigrate there? So, Boz, you are very involved in the talent acquisition, HR tech space. You know what the trends are, what potentially will have a large effect in the space. So what do you think is going to be the biggest disruptor in the HR tech space for the coming years? Well, I'm going to go back to the thing I'm most enthusiastic about, and that's the assessment tooling, the really the next generation assessment tooling. And I've seen some of it. Okay. So there's a Dutch company and they actually won my innovation in a selection award recently. They're able to build a brain profile. So a cognitive profile of who you are and what you're supposed to be able to do. And they've actually won it with a case for soccer players. At a young age, they can actually say, okay, this guy isn't that big yet, but when he starts growing, he'll be awesome. They're able to find so much diamonds in the rough, but now they're also applying this to stock market traders, to air traffic controllers. And most interestingly, they're now applying it in a healthcare organization to see, okay, so... We're not going to debate that this is a really great surgeon, but according to his brain, he's a little less in planning. So we might need to give this person a planning assistant. So they're now alleviating the cognitively most challenging part for people who are really good at what they do, just not the stuff around it, making sure people have less burnout, making sure people are supported in the areas where they need support the most. And they're also using this for internal mobility. Okay, you might be a recruiter, but hey, we see you have the brain profile of, I don't know, a finance professional or a communications professional. Can you share the name of this company? Of course, they're called Brains First. I read the article actually on this, so I've heard of them because you're right. When we talk about assessments, I think they're ideal for figuring out where that person's going to fit in the company and where they're going to move and where the skill set lies. Shelly, you're screwed because they do a brain <laughs> cognitive test. I don't know what don't you're going to do. put me out to pasture. Yeah, no, I don't know. Actually, do you know, this is absolutely amazing. And I think the other hesitation, Serge, is it's about when in the process you administer this sort of brains first assessment. Because when you think about telling someone your brain's not right to work here, (laughs) or even though you've spent your whole career and you have this exceptional talent as a recruiter, your brain is actually better set up to be packing boxes. It, like it's, it's not packing boxes. I'll give you a very specific example where they uh, used Brains First for the job of a recruiter. It was the city of Rotterdam. You might have heard of it. We used to have the biggest harbor in the world. So the city of Rotterdam, actually the city itself, okay. was recruiting a recruiter. And this guy heard actually on one of my events about Brains First. And he was like, okay, I need to convince a hiring manager to pilot this. How am I going to do that? 
wait a moment, I'm a hiring manager. We're hiring a recruiter. I just convinced myself we're going to run a pilot with this. So they did it for a recruiter job and they built a brain profile. What do we think a recruiter needs to be? And one of the things, for example, is you always have at least eight different racks at that company for four different hiring managers. So you need to be able to switch between tasks. That's That was one of the things they said that's essential for being a good recruiter in our organization because it's mm-hmm. organization specific. So they got in a whole bunch of applicants and they made it a real cool pilot. They had two selection committees. One was looking at the resume. The other one was looking at the test results. And they said, we're going to invite five people to the interview. About three of those applicants, there was no discussion. They scored decent on the resume, had an acceptable test score, so they were invited. But there was one guy who was um, the most awesome resume they had ever seen. They actually said, we should be proud that this man wants to work for us. But he had the lowest test score of them all. And there was one guy who had absolutely no resume, He'd been a front desk worker at a hotel. He did have an HR study, but he was the only one who scored 100% on what they thought a perfect brain profile for a recruiter was. So after a lot of debate, they decided to invite both of them. And I wouldn't be telling you the story if, of course, the guy with the most amazing test score eventually got the job. The guy with the most amazing resume, after the interview, they were like, how did this guy ever get this resume? His answers to every question is, how would you solve like finding a person like this? And they're like, yeah, I'll hire an agency for that. Yeah, oh, no, okay. we can do that. That's not why we're hiring you. Um, and the other guy, and I'm not saying he never got a chance because his name is Samir, but I'm pretty sure he never got a chance because he is of the Muslim faith. And He's now at the city for three years, and I've spoken to a lot of the, his colleagues because they're actually a client of mine, and everybody's like, yeah, he's still probably the best hire we've done in the last decade. And he's actually telling all of his hiring managers, like, without the test, I would have never gotten this job. And all of these hiring managers are like, but you're the most awesome recruiter I've worked with in this, this organization. Can this test work for me as well? You make a compelling argument for these type of assessments. So I'm excited to see more on that end. So for audience that have maybe heard of you or not, what's the easiest way for someone to get a hold of you? And your podcast is live right now, Talent Savvy. They can go find it on, I'm assuming, Apple, Spotify, all the major podcatchers. Talent Savvy is on every major podcasting network. And the best way to uh, connect with me is on LinkedIn. I do have a Twitter handle, but I only tweet about cycling and my rabbits. So best to just check me out on LinkedIn. If you like rabbits, check him out on Twitter. What type of rabbits? How many rabbits do you have? I have three, two Flemish giants and a small male, two giants and sisters. Okay. Um, And they're called Mona, Lisa, and Leonardo. (laughs) (laughs) i love it oh my god okay that's a first for me you are amazing thank you thank you so much for being on the show boss thank you for having me it's always a pleasure to be with the people who inspired me to start a podcast that is very nice thank you thank you oh my gosh amazing we will talk again Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. 
welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.